dealing with this mess of anxiety and nerves and overwhelm, you have to get clarity first. I think that's really important because it's clarity that's going to help you figure out what are some productive things I can actually do. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Nick Wignall, who is a board-certified clinical psychologist, and he specializes in cognitive and behavioral psychology. You also now work with organizations to improve their culture and employee well-being. Also a dad of four, and that's not a typo. I've got two. I can't imagine four. Uh, And you're also the creator of The Friendly Mind, which is a weekly newsletter with practical advice for emotional health and well-being. Cannot imagine a more useful person to help with the massive amounts of anxiety and uncertainty and abject terror in the world of the entertainment industry right Mm -hmm. now and those that do creative work than talking to you right now, Nick. So Nick, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, And the first place that I want to start is actually talking about how when we were scheduling you, a little bit of insider baseball. Debbie and I were having a conversation a week or two ago, and we were going through and figuring out like this, like just a, you know, total disclaimer this week, I've got five back to back to back to back to back to back podcast interviews. And I said to Debbie, like, do you think that there's like one or two that maybe we can move because it was really overwhelming and I don't want to be overwhelmed and be under the thought of me being un, unprepared on a podcast. I just, I can't even sleep at night. It's just, I, I'm an overachiever. I'm a recovering perfectionist. So we talked about, well, I don't know, maybe we move it to, you know, October, November. I don't know, like, is this still relevant? And I said, Debbie, 
I don't think that by October that the problem of anxiety will be solved. I am pretty confident that anxiety will still be around in two or three months. So there's no reason we can't push it. But that's all the more reason for us to record this when we record it, because this problem is not going away and it's getting any it's not it's not going to get any better anytime soon. Um, So that's that's kind of the place that we started and why I think it's so important for you and I to be talking today. Um, There's a whole host of strategies and mindsets and all the work that I want to get into. But first, what I actually want to learn about you more is what it is that you did before as a psychologist and why you chose to make the career pivot that you did. Because career pivots, that's kind of Mm. the topic du jour in my community. So I actually want to learn a little bit more, just your background, what it is that you specialized in, and now why you've made this transition. Sure. Yeah, so I started off my career, I, I got a, I graduated as a clinical psychologist, got out of grad school, um, and immediately went into working in private practice doing therapy with folks. And I, almost from the beginning, I specialized almost entirely in anxiety. Um, I did about 80% anxiety, and then another 10 to 15% um, insomnia, which is very related. <laughs> anxiety and insomnia tend to go hand in hand. Um, and so for about six years, I just, all day, every day, I was doing, I was working with people who struggled with all sorts of forms of anxiety, whether it was social anxiety, panic attacks, um, you know, OCD type stuff, just generalized anxiety, health anxiety, all this kind of stuff. Um, Perfectionism, you mentioned perfectionism earlier. Um, And so that was my bread and butter. I just did that um, constantly. And I I love, you know, I loved working with anxiety because and insomnia, both, they both have this quality of they're extremely, they're excruciating. I mean, they're just awful, like when you're living with them. But compared to a lot of the other types of issues that people, mental health kind of struggles that people have, um, whether it's, you know, eating disorders or trauma or depression or bipolar disorder, as a field, we're actually really good at understanding how anxiety works and how to overcome it. There's a lot of confusion, but there's a lot more clarity um, on, on kind of the ground level about how to actually work through anxiety in a really structured, effective way. And so I was just, I'm, I'm pragmatic. Like I love stuff that just works. <laughs> and so I love helping people who, um, you know, f- who had really difficult struggles, but that I could really make a difference with. And so anyway, I did that for a long time, but pretty soon after starting to practice it, I, I started getting frustrated because a lot of the stuff I talked about and helped folks with, um, it applied to people who who weren't necessarily in the the category of they have a clinical mental health disorder. So when you say you have an anxiety disorder, technically what that means is you have so much anxiety to such a degree that it severely impacts your life. You're not able to work. You're not able to like do kind of daily functioning type stuff. I mean, it's really impacting you. But anxiety is a completely normal human emotion and experience. Like we all get anxious um, from time to time about various things. And I thought it's just kind of silly and frustrating that we have all these great kind of insights and tools for dealing with anxiety that are only being directed toward kind of clinic people who have extreme kind of clinical cases. And so I just started kind of writing about these principles and tools that I was learning that I thought like, I, I bet you other people who maybe don't have anxiety that's that extreme to where they need to be in therapy all the time, or they have, um, you know, extremely high levels. I think it would still be really helpful. And so I started blogging, basically, I started writing articles and um, had a for I think, just about six years now, I've written a weekly newsletter every single week for six, six years, um, coming up on six years now. And, and it's proved to be there seems to be a lot of interest in it. So I was doing a lot of that. And then 
I got a, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling on here. I'm trying to wrap this up. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't worry. I, this, this is all great. Don't, don't, don't correct right, yourself. Right. At all. Keep going. I got an email out of the blue um, from a gentleman who was had worked in corporate consulting for a long time and was an entrepreneur and started a couple of companies and was thinking a lot about kind of emotional health and well-being and how sort of underappreciated that is in the work world. I mean, we spend eight hours a day, five days a week, a lot of times more than that uh, at work. And it's a place that um, to a large extent doesn't really think about or consider those things. And that's like really strange. If you just think about it from that perspective, you're spending that much time, you put that much kind of energy and passion and um, in education, all this kind of stuff into your work. But there's in that context, there's almost no thinking about, um, you know, well-being, emotional health. Um, yeah, how to culture things like that. So anyway, um, he was interested in starting a company that helped other companies with these types of issues. Um, and so I, he and I, and another, um, another guy, we, we kind of messed around for about a year and, and decided we had something that was worthwhile. And then we, we launched a company, um, to go in and work with other companies who, who cared a lot about, um, healthy cultures, well-being of their employees, that sort of thing. And so we, we do a variety of things, but I'm sort of the, the, um, the one with kind of the research, formal psychology background on the team. And so we develop curriculum and um, do programs with folks to address those types of issues. So that's my kind of day job. I do that full time. And then I continue to do my writing and and blogging and all that on, on the side um, and the occasional podcast appearance. <laughs> so so from the way that you tell that story, what, what an easy, seamless, smooth, flawless transition. Mm. I'm sure that it was, right? Um, from I've spent my whole life climbing this ladder being told, oh, you're interested in psychology? Great. That's a very reputable, secure, very predictable field. You do all this education. You get to your degree. You have your practice. Congratulations. Now you're an adult and you're a professional. So I would imagine from that to what you do now, there had to have been a few bumps in the road that created your own anxiety. Yes, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought it up. So <laughs> Um, you know, it's so anxiety was definitely in there. And I'll talk about that, especially the transition out of practice and into um, the corporate world. Um, but before that, there was actually another emotion that I think was really another kind of difficult emotion that was really instructive. And that was uh, frustration, anger, mm -hmm. almost sometimes, which was with how, it, you know, it just seems strange to me that that when it comes to emotional health, there's the resources are basically the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. And then there's like psychiatrists and psychologists office, right? <laughs> and there's almost nothing in between. But what's interesting is that's exactly where most people are. Most people have, let's say, anxiety issues or anger issues or whatever it is that they need a little more than a self-help. I mean, self-help books are great. Like I'm a self-help junkie myself, <laughs> right? Um, but sometimes people need a little bit more structure, a little bit more nuance, a little bit more, how does this apply to me in my life um, than just a book, right? Um, but they probably don't need, you know, hours of therapy every single week with a psychiatrist, with a psychologist, like that's overkill too. So there's, there's this really weird gap where there wasn't much offering kind of in the middle, but I, my experience was that's exactly where most people are. And it just kind of annoyed me with my field <laughs> that we didn't think more about that huge segment of the population, um, and that's why I more and more I use this term emotional health rather than mental health is very clinical. There's a lot of clinical mm -hmm. associations. Um, but emotional health, what it what it what I hope to convey with that is that um 
you know, our, our, and we'll talk more about this, but our relationship with our emotions is just a really profound thing. And it can be healthier or unhealthy, kind of depending on our circumstances. Um, but th- that's a significant thing, even if you don't meet criteria for kind of a clinical diagnosis, or even if your, you know, life isn't completely falling apart, there's all this work we can do um, on our, on our, emotional lives that's really, really beneficial. So I was just kind of irritated. And so that, that was the impetus to get into the, the blogging and the the kind of teaching. I do a lot. I teach a lot of workshops and courses and stuff online. And um, I just love doing that. I love kind of teaching people about emotional health and, and well-being and the mind and psychology and how it works. Um, so th- this is going to be a theme, like paying it, paying attention to your emotions, not necessarily thinking of them as these uh, annoying or, or dangerous enemies that we need to get rid of. Like, oh, I'm angry. I shouldn't be angry. Like, stop. No, I was like, I'm, I'm probably angry for a reason. Like, what, what if I kind of followed through on this? And that led me to this whole world of um, blogging and teaching and writing online, which I have just loved. Um, now, <laughs> so there was that. I was doing that. So I was doing both of those. I was writing and um, doing my, my practice for, for six or seven years. And then I had this opportunity out of the blue um, well, not totally out of the blue. It was because this guy had found some of my writing online. I was like, I like, I like the way this guy thinks. Um, so there, I think there's something in that, right? This kind of putting yourself out there. Um, that was never my intention with writing or blogging. It wasn't like a career move, but there's something really powerful and something very kind of 21st century. I think about um, well, how do you how do you open yourself up to cool opportunities uh, work wise? It's probably not. I mean. Resumes are fine, but like spamming monster.com with, with resumes is not the most efficient way, right? But there, there's something really powerful, I think, about figuring out what's unique to you. And part of that, again, I think it goes back to those emotions, those strong emotions that you feel. Those are often clues to what you're really passionate about. And so I think that's, that can be really powerful. Um, yeah, so putting that stuff out there. And that led to this, this new gig, which produced a tremendous amount of anxiety when I was considering... Well, I I put in, you know, six, seven years in grad school <laughs> and then like another six years in, in practice, like doing this psychology thing. And this guy's like, come do this new business with me, this new startup that will, you know, most startups fail. It's risky. It's totally different. Like not something I've really ever, ever trained for in a lot of ways. So yeah, I was, I was nervous as hell. Um, <laughs> there were definitely a lot of nights where I was up in the middle of the night, you know, 2am, like thoughts buzzing around, like, should I do this? Should I not do this? I have a young family. I had three little kids at that time. Um, and, you know, funnily enough, it was, and I was starting to kind of spin in my, I mean, this is a, we'll talk more about when we talk about anxiety. One of the hallmarks of anxiety is it's a, it's a very heady problem. <laughs> like it, our tendency when we get anxious is that we kind of go in our head and we start worrying and swirling around mentally. And, um, which is understandable because I think in a lot of life, problem solving uh, gets us pretty far. Like a lot of our work, a lot, it depends on being good problem solvers um, and fixing things. But there's certain times when th- that process actually makes things worse. Sleep is a great example, right? You ever try worrying yourself to sleep? It doesn't work real well. <laughs> um, but it was my wife actually who kind of pulled me out of it. And, and I was talking to her and she was being a very good listener and she was just listening and all, to all my concerns and worries. And, and she just said, you know what? Like this kind of an opportunity doesn't come along very often. Um, I think you should go for it. And she said, well, it, it's not the complete end of the world, right? If you, it would be hard to kind of get into a new practice and go back to doing, it, it would be difficult, but um, no one's going to die, right? No, <laughs> we're not going to be like living under a bridge, you know, down by the river. Um, it would be okay. 
And, but mostly she, she wasn't, it was interesting. She wasn't like alleviating a lot of my concerns so much as saying, look at all the upside over here. Um, let's vote like, let's focus. And so I thought that was really, that was really amazing of her. And I think that's another, um, there's an insight there of when it comes to anxiety, we can unpack this a little more if you want, but, um, the tendency with when we're feeling anxious is to, I need to stop feeling anxious before I can make a decision. Like I'm thinking about, do I leave my career, not just my job, my whole career and start this new thing. Um, I had a lot of anxiety about that. And my kind of assumption, even though I'm a psychologist and I talk to people with anxiety all day long, my default way of thinking was I need to be less anxious before I can make a decision. And what my wife sort of nudged me to was like, no, like you can make a good decision despite being anxious. And actually, maybe that's the way to be a little bit less anxious is to not feel kind of like you're a prisoner to your anxiety, but to make decisions with it on board um, anyway. Sorry, that's a bit long-winded, but but hopefully that gives you a sense of some of the. I mean, I mean, I'm a professional psychologist who helps people with anxiety, and I've got plenty of anxiety myself. Um, oh, so. I, I, I can relate to that as a coach that helps people, especially creative minds, deal with time management, productivity, imposter syndrome, all these other things. What I've learned the most about people that are both coaches, therapists, all kind of in that general realm, you generally choose a specialization where you can give people advice all day long that you really need to be telling yourself, Mm. right? So thinking that I'm an expert at this thing and I'm going to give you all the expertise, it's the opposite. I struggle with all the things that I teach my students, but I'm so hyper obsessed with learning how to solve them. They benefit from all the things that I learn. And when it comes to therapists or coaches or otherwise, the ones that that bother me are the ones that pretend like they don't have the same problems. Mm. But I think one of the things I love about the work that you do that I resonated with immediately is you sharing and being vulnerable and open and honest, like to be somebody that's a quote unquote expert in managing anxiety, like who are you to say that you suffer from anxiety? Shouldn't you have it figured Mm -hmm. out, right? Um, So I I appreciate that. One thing that I'm curious about is that if you were transitioning from, I've spent this entire, my entire adult life preparing for this one professional career path. I've invested all this time and money in my education and building this practice. And I want to become an underwater basket weaver, Mm -hmm. massive identity crisis and... Who, who, who am I even going to become? My guess is that you didn't experience it at that level because you're using a lot of your expertise and just sure. changing the way that you're using it. But I presume you still experience some imposter syndrome. Oh, I mean, I experience it every single day. I mean, I'm, I'm working with people who have MBAs and who have been in the corporate world and consulting world and CEOs and people who have... Um, completely different skill sets that I am totally inadequate to even being in the same room if we're comparing sort of chops on, on different things. And that's, um, yeah, I feel, I literally feel it every single day. Um, but one thing I, I, I hope that I'm fairly good at is again, going to back to that point that a it's all this stuff is normal. Like anxiety is not a disorder. Uh, so generalized anxiety disorder is a disorder right? Uh, Panic disorder is a disorder. Anxiety is a perfectly normal human emotion that we all have, right? Imposter syndrome, that's not technically a disorder. It's it's a term somebody made up, right? Um, But being anxious and comparing yourself to other people is a complete, like human beings have been doing that for as long as human beings have been human beings. (laughs) Like that's what we do. We're very social creatures. We're always attuned to and thinking about where do I stand in relationship to other people? 
that's not a bad thing. You know, one of the pieces of advice I, I hate is one of my little soapbox things. Um, I'm looking at my soapbox here. <laughs> I have a whole you, room of soapboxes. You're right. you're in a safe right. space I'm in right good now. company. All right. <laughs> I you know, there's the, there's this idea out there that we shouldn't care about what other people think. And I just think that is such nonsense. Like, of course we should care about what other people think, right? When, unless you're a psychopath, like you're gonna you're gonna care about what other people think. And mostly that's a pretty good thing. Can you go too far with it? Of course, right? Just like anything else. But the idea that you shouldn't care at all about what other people think is crazy. And it, it's just going to put more pressure on yourself in an already difficult situation. If you've got a lot of anxiety about going into a new field, right? You Having anxiety and then telling yourself, oh, I shouldn't feel anxious. Okay. <laughs> that's not going to lower your anxiety. That's going to double your anxiety. Now you have anxiety about anxiety, right? On top of your anxiety. And there's this funny sort of uh, the, the sort of physics of emotions, how they work is if you've got a difficult emotion like anxiety, and then you add another difficult emotion on top of it. So let's say you get you get anxious about being anxious, or you get you get judgmental about being anxious. Two units of anxiety, plus two units of anxiety does not equal four units of anxiety, right? It's like two to the fourth power or something, they get exponential emotions get exponentially bigger when you compound them. Right when you get angry at yourself for feeling sad, when you get anxious about being anxious, um, so I think it's really, it's really, really important. Whenever you're struggling with those emotions, it's something I try and remind myself of, especially when I feel myself spinning out and really getting kind of imposter syndrome or stressed out or whatever it is. Is that the first thing is always to acknowledge like how I'm feeling. Like yes, I am feeling anxious right now. I'm kind of feeling like an imposter, um, and that's normal. I don't like it. Right? It feels crappy. <laughs> I would really prefer not to feel this way. But just because it feels bad, it doesn't mean it is bad. There's all sorts of things in life that don't feel good, right? Working out doesn't feel good. Like eating your broccoli doesn't feel good. Like there's all sorts of things that don't feel good, but we know are good for us. And, and for whatever reason, I think culturally, we've got to this point where, you know, people talk another little of my like soapbox things. People talk about negative emotions, right? Like anxiety, anger, sad, all these negative emotions and how you need to cope with your emotions and like tamp them down. And like, no. Emotions are not negative. <laughs> you thinking about your emotions as bad things is negative, right? But emotions themselves, they might be painful. They might be pleasurable. They might be something you want. They might be something you don't want. But they're not bad, right? They're not dangerous. No emotion can hurt you. Um, but you're going to get into a lot of trouble if you start being judgmental of your emotions, if you start being intolerant of your emotions, thinking, I'm, I'm anxious. I shouldn't be anxious right now. I'm getting so frustrated. Like I shouldn't be frustrated right now. Like I should just be cool with the situation I have. It's great. I should be grateful for it. So I think that's, that's really in those situations where you're planning, maybe you're thinking about a big move into something that is maybe you're not becoming an underwater basket weaver, but maybe you're doing something that's, you know, only loosely related to what you're doing now. Like, yeah, you're going to have a lot of imposter syndrome. It's okay. It's normal. Everybody would, <laughs> whether they admit it or not, <laughs> everybody's going to. Um, and I think acknowledging that and just sort of validating that in that sense of like, this is valid. I don't like it, right? I wish it wasn't the case, but it makes sense. It's valid. It's normal. Um, there's so much power just in that simple move, right? It's so simple, but it's so easy um, to overlook that and to forget that. Um, but I just think it's, it's so helpful. 
Well, I, I want to continue this theme of uh, bringing many soapboxes into the conversation. Excellent. Now you understand why up. I make this. Now you know why I record <laughs> for 90 minutes, because um, this, this is where you really get to the meat of things. I hate all the short, pithy sound bites, and I got to get it all in 30 minutes because mm-hmm. that's that's not where you get to the truth. Right. And I love the, the only thing that I'll tell you, you don't need to correct yourself or stop yourself at all, because this is all fantastic. And I love the soapboxes and I love you just, you know, what you're saying is, quote unquote, rambling. And I think what came out of this that's so valuable that is even helpful for me and I would imagine is helpful for anybody listening is this idea of labeling an emotion as positive or negative as opposed mm. to it's just an emotion and it's how I react to it. And one of the things that I talk about with my students all the time and coming from your level of expertise, you can tell me if I'm on the right track or completely full of shit because I've got my own raging case of imposter syndrome, right? Like, for example, I'm thinking in my mind, well, I I do similar things with my clients all day long, but I don't have any degrees that are on the wall. So Mm. who the hell do I – who am I to think that I know anything that I'm talking about? But when it comes to anxiety, for example, where I see anxiety being incredibly useful and positive – is that it's a signal when something just doesn't feel right. And mm-hmm. I get that all the time in my field, especially since the beginning of the pandemic, when people realize I don't like what I'm doing or I don't like the people that I'm working with or I don't feel any sense of connection with the stories that I'm telling in the work that I'm doing. And that anxiety in my mind, if you're aware of it and where it's coming from, can be a really, really good thing. So an exercise that I do with my students, especially, and we're not doing this a whole lot right now, given the present uh, economy, but when they're debating job opportunities and they're thinking about whether or not should I take it or not, yeah, we do, you know, cost benefit analysis or pros, cons list, whatever it might be. But I ask the question intuitively, when you think about taking this opportunity, do you experience anxiety or nerves? Mm -hmm. Because it's hard to understand the difference. Anxiety is your body saying, there's something about this that is not in alignment with my values or who I am. And nerves is, this sounds scary, right? There's a huge difference. So I help people understand, like you run towards the nerves as much as humanly possible. That's discomfort saying, here's the better version of you slightly in the distance. The mm-hmm. anxiety is there's something wrong here. So am I, am I in the realm of possibility given this is what you deal with all day, every day? Yeah, so I think high level, like what, what you're bringing up is is really important and very overlooked, even among professionals in, in my field, I think, which is how we talk about things, especially the, the difficult emotions and difficult experiences, actually has a profound effect on our ability to respond to them well and deal with them. So I love this idea of thinking carefully about and making distinctions among different types of difficult experiences, right? So when when you say in in your mind, in your kind of framework, you've got anxiety versus nerves, right? Both are, you know, you you could put them sort of in the like fear family, right? If there's Mm. this broad category of fear based, you know, nerves, anxiety, panic, like whatever you want to call them. Uh, There's all sorts of kind of flavors in there. Um, and for you, though, you've got this kind of consistent distinction of when there's a kind of there's a kind of fear that is my body signaling a danger, right? Threat here. And that it's good to know that that's a specific type of fear. There's this other type of fear, right? That is what I'm going to call nerves, which is which is actually just the anticipation of a challenge. And that in your your body sort of uses the same system to deal with both of those. But if you, if you can reflect, you can actually see the difference between the two. But your ability to do that and to make good decisions in part is going to start with thinking, being careful about how you label and describe 
the experiences you're feeling in yourself. So I think I think that's actually really, really critical is to be careful and thoughtful about how you talk about these difficult, notice I didn't say bad or negative, <laughs> these difficult experiences or emotions that you're feeling, right? Mm. Um, so technically, um, I don't know, pe- pe- there's all sorts of frameworks about how people think about like anxiety versus fear or anxiety versus nerves or whatever it is. Um, but I think what's important is that we as individuals, we're thinking carefully and we're being consistent with ourselves that we can notice there's two different things here, right? There's the, the system in your brain that's designed to kind of keep you safe from threats. It can be activated if there's an actual threat going on. And that doesn't just mean a, like a bear is chasing you. Maybe it means you're working in like a toxic environment and you're, you're, you're trying to rationalize to yourself that it's fine, <laughs> but really you're, you're, your kind of lizard brain actually knows something that you're not willing to admit to yourself. And it's trying to tell you, hey, this is not a good environment. You need to, maybe you should think about leaving, right? Um, but there's this other, when we're presented with challenges that aren't necessarily dangerous, they're uncomfortable, they're scary, but they're not actually dangers to our survival. Well, our bodies recruit the same system to give us, and, and really anxiety, fear, nerves, all that, underneath the hood, like in your body, it's all just adrenaline. <laughs> it's really all it is. It's, it's, it's underneath the hood. It's adrenaline. And adrenaline is really, when you got loads of adrenaline surging through your body, it's really uncomfortable most of the time. If you're just sitting around like in a meeting and you, know, you think to yourself, oh my God, did I say something stupid? And you start getting that surge of adrenaline, it's super uncomfortable, right? But if you're, you know, if you're in your, uh, I don't know, your city like softball league and it's the championships and you're going up to the plate and you're pumped and you're ready, you want to win. Like you have adrenaline too, but you're not interpreting it as a negative thing. And so it doesn't feel as bad, but it's the same stuff going on. So I think this challenge versus threat mindset is real is a really nice way to pause and think when you're feeling some version of fear, right? What is this? Now I will say one more. So one more thing on this, I think that's important this, when it comes to emotions and how we, how, what our relationship with emotions is. I think it's important not to be either dismissive or romantic about our emotions. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, I think, you know, for a long time, our culture was pretty dismissive of emotion, especially for men. I, mean, I think that's, that's a culturally, it was sort of like, oh, you don't talk about that stuff, you know, or, or shut it down <laughs> if it's coming up. And you, we certainly don't want to be that. Like, the, you, it's dangerous to avoid your emotions or not listen to them at all. On the other hand, it's also unwise, I think, to be overly romantic about your emotions and think, because I'm feeling afraid, that means something's dangerous and I shouldn't do something. Or because I'm feeling angry, like I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> Our emotion, your emotions are your brain's best guess at what's going on. So if it thinks something's dangerous, like it's going to make you feel a little anxious because really that's adrenaline and it just wants to like prep you to fight or flee. But your, your brain isn't always right. Your brain makes mistakes sometimes. It's, it, when it comes to anxiety, the brain very easily can sort of misconstrue something that maybe looks like a threat, but isn't actually dangerous. So it's, it's very important to, I, I, I tell people, you always want to listen to your emotions, but you don't necessarily want to trust them either. You want to verify. You want to, you want to be attuned to them and say, okay, I'm feeling anxious. Like, what's this about? What is this thing? Is this a threat? Is, is my brain trying to tell me something that maybe I'm ignoring or not attuned to? Maybe, in which case, maybe you definitely listen to that. Or is this, is my brain kind of making a mistake here? And your brain does make mistakes. 
<laughs> doesn't sound very romantic, but your brain absolutely makes mistakes all the time. Um, and so one of the things you always want to do is when you're making a decision in the face of a difficult emotion like anxiety, you want to check your decision against your values, not just your emotions. So sometimes your emotions are aligned with your values. If you're hiking and a bear jumps out in front of you and your brain says, ah, run away. Like <laughs> your emotions are lined up with your values. You don't want to get eaten. So yes, you should follow that and run away. Right. But if you're considering making a career move and it seems a little scary, but there's a good amount of stuff in the pros column too, like may maybe sort of running away and avoiding looking at that. That's contrary to your values, right? Ostensibly. And so if your values conflict with your emotions, you usually want to choose values. So we, we can get into that more, but, I, but the, the bigger point is just, you always want to filter your emotions through the lens of your values, especially with big decisions. Um, and that we remember, we don't want to be either avoidant or overly romantic of our emotions. There's this healthy sweet spot in the middle that's tricky and difficult to cultivate, um, but there, there's really an art to it and you can get better at it. When you do, the decision-making process tends to get better. Unless your value is I'm a nature lover and it means I should hug the bear instead of run from it, then don't take any of our <laughs> advice. Um, but I, the, you're, you're getting right to the epicenter of everything that I want to talk about. Values is where I want to go shortly. Mm. But I sure. want to go a little bit further into this idea of anxiety versus nerves. And I actually want to add a third yeah. layer, and that is overwhelm. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. 
Mm. So we, we've well, what I think is really important that we've done so far is we've we've broken apart something that for most people I think they don't even realize there are components. Sure. And I know that the way the way that my brain works is that it's much easier for me to understand something whether it's logically or even emotionally if I have some sort of framework. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize it worked in these different parts. If I have a not necessarily a label, but if I have an understanding of what this is, I can break it into pieces and I can better yeah. work through it. Right. And I think it's one thing for people to understand. It's not just I'm feeling all the same things, whether I'm going up to the plate and I'm going to you know, try and win the game versus I work with horrible people and they treat me like shit and they're asking me to come back for another season of this project. You know, yep. biologically, those things feel largely the same. And I want to add a third one, which is be feeling overwhelmed, because I think right mm. now everybody feels overwhelmed, especially with all of the, the massive changes in technology and the economy and uh, all the, these other areas where there, there's, there's really nothing that we can grab onto and feel secure. So I guess what, what I want to do next is let, we have these three categories, anxiety, overwhelm, and we have our nerves. Help me sure. understand if I'm feeling all of these things simultaneously – what are what is a strategy or two so I can actually use the word reflect? And I love that. Having mm. awareness is so powerful. Reflect where I get that these exist. I have no idea how to parse them out and separate them. Yeah. What are some simple ways for me to better understand what I'm actually feeling? Okay. Great question. Big question. It's going to involve a multi-step answer, I think, because we got it. We got to kind of set the foundation. Um, let's do it. We got time. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> so I think the first thing is I like these distinctions of anxiety, overwhelm, and nerves. Like let's let's keep those. But I want to introduce us another kind of way of dividing up what we're feeling when we're just when we got all the three of these things on board. And and the re, I'm going to telegraph the reason this is important is because the ultimate answer to your question really depends on control. Like what are the things I can actually control and what are the things I can't control? That is like the secret question, I think, to answering your question ultimately is being able to ask yourself that and get good data from yourself. It's like so you've read every newsletter that I've written in the last three months. It's eerie <laughs> that you bring that up, but continue. Oh, yeah. So I think psychologically speaking, a really good way to think to kind of parse out what we're experiencing when we're feeling really just overwhelmed or stressed out or whatever it is, is there's a few important categories. There are emotions, okay? Emotions are things like fear, anger, sadness, um, joy. Think about Inside Out, the Pixar movie Inside Out. Like the, mm -hmm. the, Those are the basic emotions, right? Um, they are, they're their own category of thing. They're distinct, they're related to, but they're distinct from physical sensations, Right? So when I'm feeling the emotion of anxiety, my body is often stressed or tensed. Right? I have a stress response. I'm, I'm, adrenaline is like pumping through my veins. Right? Maybe, maybe my fingertips are getting a little tingly. My heart rate's going up, like all that kind of stuff. So that's so physical reactions versus emotions. That's a key distinction. Right? So I might feel my emotion is anxiety. Physically, though, I'm stressed or I'm tensed. Another critical layer is your thoughts, like the cognitive layer. Anxiety and stress, they're, they're both related. They're also both related to worry. Now, wor worry is not an emotion. <laughs> Technically, you don't feel worried. <laughs> worry is something you do in your mind. It's, it's thinking about a negative outcome in the future. It's using your imagination to predict or, or think about negative, dangerous things in the future. 
Okay. That's a very different class of thing than an emotion and a, a, a physical response. Okay. So we've got emotions, we've got physical responses, we've got thoughts. And then the last really important one is behavior. Literally, what do you do? Right? And so an example of a behavior might be um, procrastinating or like avoiding. <laughs> right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid this conversation that I know I need to have. Or I'm going to avoid my coaching session because I know he's going to ask me about, you know, if I've done my homework on looking at a new stuff. So now, so the four are emotions, physical sensations, thoughts, and behaviors. Now that's important because emotions, you have zero direct control over emotions. There, there is no anxiety knob you can like turn down. <laughs> There's no happiness lever you just like crank up and all of a sudden feel good. This is really, it sounds dumb, but like this is actually, you'd be surprised how many times our struggles with anxiety ultimately come from a misconception that I ought to be able to control how I'm feeling emotionally right now. You cannot do it. And if you try, it will make it worse. <laughs> Trying to control things that you can't control will always backfire. We can get in more of that if you want. Um, on the other, and, and this is largely true of physical responses as well. If you're just super tense and stressed out, you can't just stop being stressed, right? You, can't, you can take some deep breaths, right? You can close your eyes. You can indirectly, you can change your behavior, which will indirectly affect how you're feeling physically. But again, no dial for like tension, stress, what's going on in your body for the most part, right? Um, so this is really important. Emotions, physical responses, not something you have a ton of control over. On the other hand, thoughts and behaviors, you actually do have a very high degree of control over both of those. Okay. So you can choose what you decide to do when you're feeling anxious. Do you feel anxious and immediately like pull out your phone and scroll social media as a way to distract yourself from the anxiety? Maybe, <laughs> maybe helpful, maybe not. Uh, but that's something you can control. You could decide not to do that. Right. Um, your thoughts, right? Now, this one's a little tricky. Um, there are a certain, some thoughts are not under our control. Sometimes you're just cruising around and like a thought pops into your head. And I forgot to get bananas at the grocery store, right? You didn't choose to have that thought. So some thoughts are not under your control, right? Or a thought pops into your head like, oh my God, like wh what if I don't get a job in the next month and my savings runs out, right? You didn't choose to think that thought. It just popped into your head. However, whether you continue to think about that is absolutely something you have control over. A lot of our thoughts are under our control. Now, this is when it comes to anxiety, this is critical. Like, this is arguably the most important distinction. A worry can pop into your head at any time. You can't control that. There's nothing you can do about it, right? Worrying, the act of elaborating on one of those thoughts that popped into your head is absolutely something you can control. It's hard, <laughs> it's not easy, but it is definitely something, especially with practice, you can get better at doing. And that really matters for anxiety because the thing that causes anxiety is worry. You cannot have anxiety. You can't have the emotion of anxiety without worry first. We're, our, the, the, the principle here is called cognitive mediation. What this means is our thoughts mediate the relationship between what happens to us and how we feel emotionally. Okay, so you have a, a thought pops into your head, 
right? Or someone says something nasty to you, right? That's an event, right? The sound waves from their voice don't cause anxiety. The sound waves from their voice go into your brain. You think about, you process them cognitively. It's self-talk is usually how we do it. And the interpretation of that event is what leads to the emotion. Okay. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm going into like school mode here, but I, this stuff oh my God, is I love really it. I keep going. Okay. For getting out of the overwhelm actually mm-hmm. is being really clear on what are the types of things I'm experiencing? Emotions, thoughts, physical sensations, behaviors. And okay, so I got all these things in front of me, right? I'm, I'm worrying like crazy. I'm feeling super anxious. My body's tense and stressed, right? Um, and I'm just like, I'm kind of distracting myself. I'm avoiding all this kind of stuff. Okay. Given all that's going on, what can I actually control? What can I do? Emotions, physical sensations, very little. Your thoughts and your behaviors, you actually have a lot of opportunity to make changes there. And when you make changes there, those will indirectly end up affecting how you feel emotionally and physically. So when you're saying, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling overwhelmed, you know, I'm feeling, I've got all this nerves. What I would ask myself is I would first say, all right, I'm just going to write all this stuff, all the stuff I'm feeling inside. I'm going to get it out of my head and body. And I'm, I'm literally, I'm going to pull out my uh, <laughs> pad and paper, a paper and a pen. And I'm just going to write down what I'm experiencing. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I've got some nerves here. I'm really stressed. I'm like, I'm worrying about so-and-so or what's going to happen here. Get it out. Then ask yourself, of all this stuff, what do I have direct control over? This is really, really, really important. And circle those. Literally, it sounds stupid, but it's, it's really helpful. Circle those things. Like I find myself worrying about stuff I can't control in the future. Right? That's causing a ton of anxiety. It's not the only thing, right? But that's a big chunk of it. And that is actually something I can control. But we can talk about, get into how you actually do that. But like, boom, there, worrying. If you're anxious and overwhelmed, worrying is almost always a huge culprit. And you can almost always do a lot about it. But you would never get there if you're just totally overwhelmed and you don't have these categories for things. If you can't, it's like having a messy room, right? If your room is just a disaster and there's stuff all over the place, you can't find anything. It's very hard to get work done. <laughs> but if things are ordered and neat and you know exactly where everything is, it's much easier not completely easy, but easier to get stuff done. So dealing with this mess of anxiety and nerves and overwhelm, you have to get clarity first. I think that's really important because it's clarity that's going to help you figure out what are some productive things I can actually do. Um, so anyway, that's a lot. We can you tell me where you want to go more, but I think that's my that's how I set up the problem. Is actually just mm. not rushing right into like, oh, I got to do my breathing exercises, or oh, I'm going to go meditate for five minutes, or you know, I remember my mantra, or I got to you know, mm-hmm. pop a CBD pill, or like like. Not there's anything wrong with those things necessarily, but it's a mistake to start doing stuff before you've slowed down and gotten clarity on what's actually going on with me. And those four buckets, I think, are a really good place to start. Yeah. Emotions, thoughts, physical sensations, behaviors. Um, I, I love all of this. This is exactly what I wanted to dive into. Um, 
I, when it comes to the solutions and especially this idea of writing down your fears and your worries, I want to get to that in a little bit because you have a really interesting yep. way to do this, like on a schedule, which mm-hmm. I was fascinated by. So we're going to get there a little bit later. Um, but the two things that I wanted you to go a little bit deeper into this current conversation um, are the value that I personally found in understanding physical sensations. And mm-hmm. I'll just, I'll, th- this is not, you know, like clinical knowledge. This is my own personal anecdotal experience. And maybe you can help explain extrapolated to, you know, more amongst the the larger data set in your clinical experience. Um, But what I've learned how to do to differentiate these three things, whether it's anxiety, overwhelm or nerves, and that I've helped my uh, my students and my clients to do as well, is where do I feel it in the body? Like somatically, Mm. where am I experiencing these? And the way that I experience it is going to be different than others. But I know that if I feel like some some tightness in my chest and I'm sweating a little bit and my heart is beating faster, I'm scared of something and I'm nervous. Like I get this feeling Mm -hmm. all the time when I'm trying something, uh, a new physical challenge. Uh, And I learned this process because a little over five years ago, I decided with an award-winning dad bod and two kids, I'm going to be an American Ninja Warrior. Wow. Like every single week, at least once or twice, here's the situation. I have no idea how I got myself into this. What am I doing here? So I very acutely know what those nerves feel like. Right. Yeah. It's, it's butterflies. It's like it's the butterflies and the nerves. To me, anxiety is this giant black pit in my stomach. Mm-hmm. Very different from the nerves. Once I break it down physically and overwhelm just feels like this giant 800 pound weight that's sitting on top of me. So I, I can't like physically extrapolate what those actually look like and nobody could test me for them. But I have this visualization. So I know which of the three I'm feeling in my own body. Okay, let me ask you, I've got a theory, um, I have to share, but I want to ask you first, why do you think that works? That idea to like, go into your body as a first move when you're feeling all this stuff? Like what, what's the, what's the actual mechanism there that's helpful, do you think? Mm, Okay, so I have no idea. Let me preface it by saying I have no clue. (laughs) But I also have a, a hypothesis that I don't even know if it's going to be in our lifetimes. But I think we're going to discover that our body has a separate brain and nervous system separate from this giant thing that we have inside our heads that we don't even understand. That's a totally separate thinking mm. mechanism from what we currently think of where we think and we're, we're conscious and we're cognitive, whether that's in the gut, whether that's in a, you know, some other nervous system uh, that we don't even understand. But I think we're going to find that um, there's both much more integration between body and mind, but then paradoxically, mm. way more separation. I don't really, I don't even really know how to explain that, but I, there, there's so much about our bodies and our nervous systems and our brains that we just don't understand. We think we do, but I don't think we do. Like, yeah. you know, at a certain point in history, we were so sure that the earth was flat. Like, this is just fact. It just right. is what it is until it wasn't. And I think our understanding of all the thinking happens in the brain and the body is for moving. It's just we're meat puppets mm. with a brain attached to it. I don't think that's true at all. But if I, if somebody were to say, we'll explain that further, I have no idea how to do that because I don't think anybody does. I love that. I, I think the one of the ways I think about that kind of dilemma that you're explaining is that um, we're very inside out creatures, right? It's mm-hmm. right, what's in my head and then like, where do I go moving outwards? You know, my brain doing things and affecting the world. But I think what we're less sensitive to and aware of is the reverse. How does the world, how does my body influence my brain? Mm-hmm. Which then, of course, influences how I interact with the world again. Um, but I think that it's a two-way street. And we're very familiar with one, one lane of the street. 
and very ignorant of the other one. So I'm, I, I, yeah, I would put money on your hypothesis. I, I think there's a lot there. So um, what's your theory? Yeah. So one, and this is a very mundane, and I'm not saying this is the only explanation, but I think it's actually really powerful, which is when you go into your body like that, what you're doing, it, it's, it's more about what you're not doing than what you are doing. And so if you go into your body and you say like, okay, where am I experiencing this anxiety? And you're saying, yeah, like my, my stomach, I've got this big black hole, this like, I feel like I have this pit in my stomach, right? Or I've got all this like shoulder tension. And like, if you, if you stop, and what I was just saying, if you analyze that thought content, it's decidedly non-judgmental. It's descriptive. You're simply describing what is. You're not, and, and most importantly, you're not doing time traveling. You're in the present. Mm. Your mind is not projecting forward to the future or reaching back to the past. And those two things, worry about the future, rumination about the past, those, that's like gasoline on the fire of difficult emotions. <laughs> when you're feeling anxious and then you start catastrophizing about the future and what it means and what's going to happen, and blah, blah, your anxiety is going to go through the roof. So when you go into your body and you're, you're just describing what you're feeling, you are not catastrophizing, worrying. You're not going into your head spinning, um, making those emotions more intense and frequent. So I, I actually think that's one of the secrets to this, this sort of technique that a lot of us have stumbled upon of going into the body, whatever that looks can take a variety of different forms. Um, but I think... Yeah, I think it has to do in a lot of ways. It has to do with what you're preventing yourself from doing, because um, again, that the 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 thought stuff, right? The worrying about the future, the self criticism, the judgment about oh, I shouldn't be feeling anxious right now, or what's going to happen? What are people thinking of me? Being all that kind of stuff that you your your anxiety gets exponentially more intense when you're doing all that kind of. So you give yourself a respite when you go into your body. Um, yeah, yeah, that's I, that's, no, one, I, that's one of my little theories on that. I, I I love that, and I think that there there obviously there's so much research and thousands of years of spirituality about this idea of being in the present, not looking in the past or the future. And just to bring it back to what we're talking about now, to use your analogy, if you're you know you're on your your local softball team and this is the championship mm -hmm. series and it's the bottom of the ninth and you're going up to the plate. It's impossible to be worried about the job interview you have in two weeks because you're so completely consumed with the adrenaline rush mm. of the present. And what I have found through all of my Spartan racing and Ninja Warrior training is that it drastically reduces my anxiety because it forces me to be in the present with good fear, right? The, these nerves and, oh, my God, what? I'm going to jump off of a 20-foot plank into, like, dirty, muddy water and I have to swim to a caro net? I'm not thinking, gee, is that person going to respond to my outreach email? Right. There, there's no room for that. So it allows me to really differentiate those. And there's so much value to being the present. So, yeah, we're, we're totally on the same page there. Absolutely. Um, the, the next area that I want to get into is one that you've touched upon already. Then I want to make sure that we get to a couple of these strategies. Um, sure. But the next one that I think is so fundamental to both the work that you're doing and intersects perfectly with the work that I'm doing is this idea of values and identity. 
as we see in both our, our economy, whether it's with technology, whether it's just with the, the current jobs market, but just a much, much bigger picture. What I've been saying really since the beginning of the pandemic and now with what I've been calling COVID 2.0, which I didn't realize how apropos that is because I'm now seeing all these things about new variants and masks. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have called this COVID 2.0 and maybe this is my fault. But the point being that I think this is an identity crisis that all of us are collectively going through as a culture, which mm -hmm. is that we've spent generations assigning what we do to who we are. And I think that a lot of that is what creates the misalignment of my work to who I really am and my values, but we don't consciously see it. So I want to talk a little bit more about the work that you do with values and how mm -hmm. we can identify those values and that can help us reduce the anxiety or the worry or all the other things that we've talked about because values is a core part of the work that you do. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, one, one, the frame I usually take when I start thinking about values and, and how it intersects with identity is one, you can tell I'm a, I'm a distinguisher. I like making distinctions among things, but um, when you think about values, you can think about um, inherited versus acquired values. Mm. So we all inherit values from our parents, from our grandparents, from culture, from our uh, faith tradition, from our, you know, our school, like whatever we, especially when we're young, right? We just absorb, like we absorb language and all sorts of things. We absorb values, like what is good, you know, going to school and going to college and getting a degree, that's good, right? That's a value. Is, is it objectively a good thing? I don't know. That's like for the philosophers, right? But our culture has, has basically, or a lot, a big portion of our culture has said, that's a, that's a value and you should pursue that, right? A value is like an ideal or, or a principle, right? It's kind of like the, it's like the North Star is like the mm -hmm. metaphor, right? And so like the North Star, you should head toward the North Star, right? Um, now there's nothing necessarily wrong with inherited values, right? I think they can be really good. They can be really, and good, again, good's a tricky word. <laughs> uh, I, I tend to like helpful rather than good. Good gets kind of moralistic and um, not that that's bad, but it can be, depending on your background, it can, be, it can be tricky. But is a particular value that you've inherited, is it helpful to you in your current life right now? I think that right there is actually a really powerful question. Right? So thinking about inherited what values have I inherited from my culture, from my family, from my religion, like whatever it is, right? Now, the other type of values are acquired or chosen values. This is where, and we've probably already done this already, you're, you know, in your first job, you have a supervisor, or a manager, or a boss, and you just like, you admire the hell out of them. And you admire them for some specific quality or, or value, right? Their, their work ethic is just unbelievable, right? And you came from a culture that didn't, you know, wasn't anti-work ethic, but didn't, that wasn't a big thing. And now you're like, wow, like this is incredible, right? Or you start dating someone who is just profoundly compassionate. And it's not that you didn't like compassion before, like who's, who's going to say compassion is not important, but you've seen like the value of someone who's truly like lives out compassion. And you've decided like, I want that. That's really important to me. I'm going to try and start living my life more in accordance with that, with that value. Right. So these are two ways that we kind of come upon values. Um, and I, th I think it's important to, to keep those clear. Like I said, one thing to be careful of is just taking an inventory of your value, because you probably have tons of values that you aren't even super aware of that are still having an influence on your life, on the decisions you make, on how you feel about things, on your identity. 
And so a, a really simple way of getting really practical here, you can just Google personal values list. There's tons of them. Like I have one, James Clear has a really good one. They're, they're all over the place, right? And all it is, there's no like correct list of a hundred personal values. They're like, they're, you know, a hundred different people could create a hundred different lists and they'd all have some similarities and some differences. That's not the point. The point is there's a list of all sorts of values, things like, courage, compassion, creativity, hard work, you know, like whatever, all these ideals. And what's really useful is to just spend a little time with that list. And so here, one thing you can do is you just go through and you might do a pass saying, which of these values do I have that I've inherited from my family or from my culture, right? Which of these values have I sort of chosen and acquired myself, right? Is, is another one like sorting those out. You could also just make a list of like, which ones intrigue you? Like, ooh, I've never really, I've never really thought about that one before. Or ones that make you feel a little conflicted. Like I was talking to somebody recently who did one of these and went through a values list and they saw the word patriotism. And they were like, ooh, that's an interesting one. Like I, I want to be patriotic, but I feel conflicted about it too. And like, I don't know, I feel this interesting like pull with that one. Like, what's that about? Well, yeah, that's, like, that's a loaded word right now. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? Like, but that's but that's interesting because what that what that pull is is a symptom of is that there's something inside of you right that is there's a strong connection there and if you don't bring awareness to that connection it's going to influence you whether you realize it or not and so a lot of this is about becoming more aware of what are the values in my life that are kind of operating well, you can think about like think about like apps on your computer like before I got on this podcast, I was like, you had very clear, nice instructions about, you know, make sure you don't have 400 internet tabs open and make sure you don't have Google Drive running in the background because that's going to, those things, they're helpful in one circumstance, right? But if you're trying to record a podcast, they're going to slow everything down. They're going to muck everything up. They're not going to be really useful. But to do that, you have to, li- and you prompted me, <laughs> you have to literally take inventory of what are those things, what are those values running in the background for me? And then, and how are they influencing me? Right, so my my value of hard work, right? I was raised in a, in a family that really valued hard work. I think largely that's a really good thing. You know, there's all these sort of areas in my life, my work, um, my creative life, where hard work has been super beneficial. But and this is this is the really uncomfortable thing to to come to terms with is values come in conflict with each other, even like core values. So. To, Two of my like really core values are hard work and what I call presence, which is, you know, you know, those people where you, you talk to them and they have this extraordinary capacity to really be present. Like they're fully there with you completely. They're not, most people are mostly present, but there's still like 10% of their brain that's like on something else, right? Which is fine. Like I'm like that. Most people are like that. But there are those amazing people out there who sometimes are just fully with you. And that like presence is, especially with kids, like now that I have kids, that's such an important value to me is like being really trying to really, truly be present with them. But here's the thing, like hard work and presence often conflict with each other. Like I'm so passionate about my work that it's very easy for me to find myself, like I'm laying on the carpet playing blocks with my two-year-old, right? Or cars, he loves cars. Um, and I'm I'm kind I'm like mindlessly playing with the blocks, but I'm thinking about my next blog post that I'm going to write, or I'm thinking about how I blew that answer that Zach asked me that question and I completely miffed it. And like, like what? <laughs> That's that. It's it's not a bad thing. It's I have a value of hard work, 
right? And so it's my brain following that value, but it's conflicting with this other value that I have, which is presence. So I think that's a really key idea is to, you can go through a personal values list, identify the really big ones for you, like the core, you know, core values or whatever you want to call them. There's maybe, there's maybe five, six of them. They're like the really big ones that you want to sort of guide your life. But the, real, the next level, the really next level move is to say, pick two of them and say, when did these two values come into conflict in my life? Like what, and then what do I typically do when they come into conflict? Does one tend to win out over the other one? Why might that be? What are some things I could do? So this idea of, um, yeah, thinking about values conflicts and then being very mindful and intentional about that you can't have your cake and eat it too. Sometimes your values are going to conflict. You're going to have to make a decision. One, you will end up following one or the other. You might just do it mindlessly. Better though, if you could have spent some time reflecting on those conflicts so that you can be really intentional about it. Like when I'm playing with my kids on Saturday and I get this hard work conflict with presence, I'm going presence every time. It's going to be hard. Maybe I'm thinking, maybe I'm like really cranking on a good idea for a new blog post or something. I'm dropping my values to those two come in conflict. I'm picking presence each time. So having a, it's not enough to know your values, even your core values. You have to be able to prioritize your values given certain circumstances. And I think that's, it's, to me, that's, that's not talked nearly enough about. We don't, we don't like the idea that we have to pick, <laughs> but like life will make you pick. Um, and you can either be intentional and thoughtful about it, or you can be kind of reactive about it. Um, and so I love the exercise of, of looking at those values conflicts and, and thinking through, what do I want to do when those values conflict? I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. It's very clear to me now why my team member, Julie, read your newsletter and said, oh my God, stop everything and get Nick on our podcast. Because 
it's for over half of this conversation, my assumption is you literally must be reading everything that I write because you're just hitting the <laughs> nail on the head where it's so much in alignment. And the thing that is just ringing all of these bells for me right now, I've been having this conversation for years about the term work-life balance. Mm. And I've yet to completely solve this. But whenever somebody asks me, you know, how do you get more work-life balance? And I say, you're asking the wrong question. I think the term is severely flawed. Like, well, mm. what should it be instead? I'm not totally confident I have the answer, but my mm. current answer has been for years, what we need to work towards is more work-life presence. Mm. When I'm on oh, the job, I'm doing the job. When I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids, right? You can have work-life balance where you work 40 hours a week and you're with your kids 40 hours a week, just to make the math even, I can't imagine 40 hours a week with your kids, like all the moms oh out there, I don't know how you do it, right? <laughs> um, but let's just do the math. We say they're perfectly balanced on the scale. If I'm at work all day long, thinking about my kids and how much I hate my job, and if I'm with my kids, thinking about the next blog post or the next email, I have 0% work-life presence and 100% work-life balance. And I think presence is such an undervalued skill, especially with how distracted we are with social media and work overworking 24-7. And the value that we have towards work is so completely and ridiculously skewed uh, versus the rest of our life. I've always said that work-life presence is what I want to work towards mm. more, which is really, really challenging. But what I want to zoom into even further, and if you want to pull on that thread, you can. If we want to go deeper into this, I'll kind of let you choose. And I think you'll have a really good way to blend both together. But what, what I often teach as far as actual strategies and tactics in my program, there are two areas. Um, there are several where I specialize, but two that I really help people with a lot are time management and financial management. Mm -hmm. And it's never about, well, here are the time blocks or here are the numbers or here's how to be more efficient or here's how the spreadsheets work. That's all part of it. But the bigger question that I always ask, and this one just, this is like digging the knife into the wound for everybody, is how you spend your time in alignment with your values. Mm -hmm. is how you're spending your money in alignment with your values and how do you change your story so both of those are in alignment with your values. And I think to me, this is the heart of why we're having an identity crisis because how we spend our time is not in alignment with our values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I was just watching, my wife and I were just watching this show. Um, you know, Ramit, oh, you've had Ramit on the podcast, right? I Ramit, Ramit's my mentor and the reason mm -hmm. I have a business. Yes, Ramit's oh actually, a, he's Ramit's a friend man. of mine and I, I've I've known Ramit for years and years. And um, you, uh, yeah, you'll, I've, we could talk about Ramit for hours, but he's, uh -huh. he's literally the reason that I'm here and have a business. But he, so his concept of the, your rich life, Right. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's 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 his term for your value, like all of these, like m the minutia of your financial situation and budgets and like, you know, rent versus buy, blah, 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 blah. All, mm -hmm. like, so I feel like so much you could kind of if you had to distill Ramit down into like a, a little bit, it's like all of those things should only be decided on in the context of your value, like having mm -hmm. clarity about what you actually want out of life, what really matters to you. And importantly, not in this just like big abstract, like I have to have one value that's true forever. No, like your, your situation is going to change. And so there's this like meta skill, I think, of being adaptable with those values, right? And knowing that like, you know what, my values as a 22-year-old fresh out of college are probably, some of them are probably similar. There's gonna be a lot of differences to my values as a 38 year old with four little kids, right? <laughs> Those are just like really different life situations. And so I'm gonna need to update 
that value system, my rich life in, in Ramit's terms, like, but whatever that is, that's a normal process. And so again, it goes back to this, like, you know, values work is not, you don't sit down once and like fill out a spreadsheet or, you know, fill out a, a worksheet or go through your values list. It's something that should always be sort of on the back of our minds that we're, we're constantly up to, or you're like, just like you keep your computer updated with like the latest software, right? Values work is something that I think we want to continually go back to and be continue to be mindful of because um, it's just it's just so important. It's it sets the trajectory for everything else, whether we're talking about our finances or whether we're talking about, oh my God, I'm like overwhelmed with anxiety. What do I do? That is a values question. That is absolute like your values, you don't want you don't want your emotions to completely dictate that decision. You want them to inform it, right? But you need your values to make a good decision about how to proceed in the face of ambiguity, uncertainty, anxiety, overwhelm, all that sort of thing. Um, mm. So, man, I'm with you. I could talk about values for all day long. I, yeah, I have a feeling that topic. we're going to need to schedule seven more of these, I think, because uh, uh, you and I, I've, I've gotten through about three sentences of five pages worth of prep work. So this could take oh, yes. a while. I'll, I'll be okay. conscious of your time today, but I, I have a feeling there will be either more off the record and or more on the record conversations in the future, because I feel like I've, I've definitely found a kindred spirit. Um, one, one further thing that I want to hit a little bit uh, even harder, uh, and I'm so glad you brought it, Ramit. I never in a million years thought we were going to mm. talk about Ramit Sethi on this podcast. <laughs> um, but there's something that, uh, that I have to distinguish that I think is so important to this conversation and values. And it actually comes from a really random conversation that I had with my family and my son. Hmm. And my son is in middle school. And I don't remember, it was maybe a month or two ago. And he was talking to, to uh, his uh, his grandparents, so my in-laws. And he had said something about, oh yeah, well, dad has this book on his shelf about how to get rich, right? Talking about Ramit's book, right? Yeah. And I yeah. said, there's a huge distinction about books about how to get rich and how to be rich. Right. Mm. And poor Ramit, even he knows that when he does, when he picked the name of his business, he's like, boy, did I dig a hole for myself. Yeah. Right. Cause it just sounds like it's another one of these scammy things, but you get to know him better. And it's about how to be rich. And the point is you can be rich at any time. It's all about a perspective. It's about a state of mind and it's about your values, not about mm. how do I acquire more wealth or more money or more success. He's the antithesis of all of that. On the flip side, he will also teach you how to do all of the above, right, right? Right. But it's about how can I be rich now as opposed to how do I get rich? Mm. And that to me is such an important distinction, especially for people in the entertainment industry, where the definition of success, the outward definition, is that you need the Oscar or you need the Emmy mm -hmm. or you need to have all these credits or whatever it might be, or you need to acquire the house and the nice car. And until we've done that, reach the destination right? That, that then we haven't been successful yet, but that's often in misalignment with our values, which as we're coming back to the core idea, misalignment of your values is what causes the anxiety. So there, there's two practical uh, strategies that I want to walk away with, uh, of which there are a million and a half more if anybody joins your newsletter or learns about the work that you're doing. But I want to, I always like to leave people with action steps. It's really yeah. important to me that somebody has at least something they can leave with. So the two things, which are both kind of a they're both habits and they're both reflective processes. Number one, how often should we and how do we reflect on our values? And also, how often can we reflect on our worries and make it systematic? Because this is something really interesting and unique that you share, which mm. is that you plan both of these. So talk a little bit more about these two strategies. Yeah. Um, I, you know, 
first of all, I'm kind of an experimentalist. So I said, like, I think the real answer is you're going to have to experiment a little bit and figure out what works for your life. Um, but I think what's important is that there is a consistent cadence with values. So like quarterly, you could do it. You could set up a, you know, an hour at the, you know, every quarter or something. It doesn't have to be a ton of time, right? Um, but I think just that there, so that there's some, it's, you know, it, it's it's like the dentist. You just book the appointment and just, you go every time, you know, you, you just don't think too much about it. You set it and forget it. You know, you get on the schedule and it's just something that it's important to you. So don't leave it up to, to thinking and decision-making, make it automatic. Like that's Ramit's whole thing with money too, right? Like just like systematize everything important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think, so build in some time and then also don't like, you don't get rigid about it. Like I think that values are, um, you know, there's, there's no like five-step framework that's going to like give you all the answers. What matters is just that you spend time around them. And that like, <laughs> this sound, this sounds so dumb, but <laughs> that like the answers will emerge from that. It's it's about quality time. You read, read that book, The Five Love Languages. This is a little oh yeah, weird of course. rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. So like, it's my it's the book I like. I hate to love, right? It's so corny and it's so like it's cheesy and the the you know the photo on the cover and but it's profound. Like it's so profound. The core idea is so profound. Anyway, but the idea of quality time, like in some some ways, I think that's like the master love language. Like everything else comes out of quality time. And we know that quality time is so important with other people, right? Our kids, our spouses, our parents, like what are even our coworkers, right? But it's worth asking, how much quality time do I spend with myself? Do I give to myself? Including to really important parts of myself, like my values. So I, you know, like, <laughs> I sort of, I can't stop talking about Ramit, but like when people ask him about budgeting, he's got this great way of saying like, Yes, you need to be thinking about your bu- your budget, but like there's a few core things you need to focus on and like don't get lost in the weeds. <laughs> right? You, you don't need 82 spreadsheets like to track every like <laughs> focus on the big stuff, right? And get those right. Um and you won't have to worry about the tiny stuff. Um so I think there's something similar with values. Like I don't worry too much about what am I doing, you know, like all the the detail. What's important is that you're carving out time to reflect on them. And you can do that however you like, you can just journal about them, right? One, one, I think really nice, something I do, I try to do is each quarter, I'll pick one value to focus on. That'll be like my focus value. And I, I do something dumb, like I'll, I'll get a like sticky note and I'll just like put it on my, with that value written on it, just so that I'm reminded of it. I think something as simple as that, what, <laughs> what matters is that you do it. Like that's much more important that you do it perfectly well. What matters is you do it consistently. Um, so that's, that's what I would say. Schedule something quarterly, half an hour, sit down with the values list. And then if you want, pick one to be like your focus value that you want to like think about and be more intentional about for the next whatever quarter, month, whatever cadence you work yeah. for you. I love that. I'm going to add a little bit to this. And then I want to make sure we get to this idea of scheduling your anxiety, which is a brilliant concept. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but you have an entire book, if not a series with that one sentence. Maybe you know that already. Um, But when it comes to this idea of values, one of the exercises that I take my my students through very early in my program is once they set a goal, there's this idea of, well, the goal is Mount Everest. 
Mm-hmm. And there are certain qualities that I need to identify with in order to get there that I don't feel I possess. So it's not just a matter of here are the values or how I identify. Here's how I need to identify if I'm going to achieve what feels like an insurmountable goal. So I have them pick these three words that would be values like I'm I'm confident or mm-hmm. I'm root relentless or I'm focused, whatever it might be. And it's exactly like you said, take the post-its. Put it on the side of your computer. Put it on your refrigerator. Set automations on your phone. I have my students have them texted to themselves. Sure. They're like, this is dumb. Like, really? Like, I know the fourth time I got the text message that I'm going to get these words and I ignore it. And then a month later, they're like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Like, this crazy stuff actually works. And I'm, I'm starting to actually feel like I have these qualities. And like, see, <laughs> right? There's a lot more going on subconsciously than we understand. Yeah, I love that. It makes me think too that the the other, I think it's important not to get too um, philosophical and fuzzy with value. Like values are just, on one level, they should just be very utilitarian and useful. So going back to anxiety, if there are certain situations where you tend to get kind of stuck in anxiety, like maybe you're thinking about a career move, right? But every time you get into it, you just get kind of overwhelmed with anxiety. That is like a huge signal that a value could be really useful. So it's worth asking if you have really sticky emotional situations, a great question to ask yourself, pull up your values list and say, of my values, especially my core values, which one could be the most helpful in this situation? Like if I was really mindful and attuned to that value and why it's important in my life, in that moment, that's really hard. I bet you you would deal with it a lot better if that mm. value was on oh my board God. Yes. in that difficult situation. That's, that's one of the terrible things about um, anxiety is that it, we get a tunnel vision, right? And all we care about is like, I can't feel this anxious anymore. I have to not feel anxious, right? <laughs> and it goes back to that story about my wife. Like what she helped me do is say like, like, I mean, growth is one of my core values. And like taking this new job, this is a huge growth opportunity. You're going to be able to learn so much. It's, it's going to like, you're going to have so many new ideas. You're going to meet so many new people. And I was like, yes, sold. My, I'm still anxious as hell, <laughs> right? But my values are now outcompeting that anxiety and allowing me to move forward. So I think bringing values out of the clouds and in a very utilitarian way, bringing them to bear on some thorny, gnarly emotional situation can be Mm. super helpful. Yeah, I love this. And uh, we're going to get to this idea of scheduling anxiety because there's no way I'm letting you go until I understand Let's this do process. It. I love it. But I, yep. I, I want to add to I want to add to this first. And I want to make sure that my interpretation is correct because I had at least one aha moment in the last five minutes. Mm. Um, so I'm just going to break this down from my own personal perspective. Hopefully it's helpful for the rest of my audience. I know that there are two words that are incredibly important to me as values and their presence and their patience. And it would Mm. seem to me that those two work really well together, but I just thought of an instance where they very much conflict and how I can use this out of the clouds and make it practical, right? Because I value presence, I often get very impatient with my family when they're on Mm. their phones. And that's an area where I know the presence is important and I stand by it and I'm not going to diminish that value. But if I bring a third value in, which is one that I struggle with, which is compassion, there's probably an emotional reason that they're drawn to their phones. And if I want to practice the value of patience when they're not being present, well, that requires a little bit of compassion. Am I interpreting this correctly? Mm, I love it. You're thinking like a behavioral psychologist. It's called functional analysis. Mm. In any quote unquote bad behavior, there's a reason why someone's getting something out of it. 
And com- compa- like compassion is one way of saying that you're being compassionate when you're, they're not just, tr- they're not trying to be rude or not present, right? That's not the intention there. Mm-hmm. They're getting something out of it, right? Whether it's excitement or novelty or connection or something, right? And tuning into that and just taking a breath and realizing that, yeah, that's, I think that's the, a great setup for both, like you said, both patience and presence. Mm, I, I love, love it. it. All right. This, yeah. this is great. I'm, I'm going to, uh, it's funny because I think in another life, I was meant to be a functional behaviorist and a psychologist mm. and a sociologist. Because uh, what, what I've found over the years, and this is not a tangent, this is directly related to this idea of things that you value, um, especially with career transitions. Uh, and I've talked about this a few times before, but I found that when I, I spent most of my life identifying as an editor, that's all that I did. Literally from mm. nine years old, two VHS players, hit play, hit record, yeah. learning the craft learning the process, telling stories. And then all of a sudden at 35, height of my career, what if I don't just want to be this one thing anymore and I want to be a present dad or I I want to have the freedom to earn income in other ways and I had this massive identity crisis and I realized that my values were so skewed towards this one identity. And then as I started to make Mm -hmm. the transition, I realized that it wasn't just a matter of starting over, that I had these values that made me really good as an editor. And what it really was more than anything is my obsession with human behavior and why people do what they do. I love that. And then as I started to make the transition to what I'm doing now, I've realized that I have all the traits of what I think draws people to be psychologists or sociologists or behaviorists, like all of the authors that I put on pedestals like Michael Jordan and LeBron James, they're all obsessed with human behavior and why, how yeah. we think, right? So that and it was finding those connections and those values that helped me deal with the pivot and the anxiety of the career transition and not thinking I'm starting over. Who do I think I am to do this totally new thing? It was about identifying with the values and the things that I'm interested in and, and the, the intersection of those that helped me through it. I love it. It just made me, I had to pull this up because what you were saying reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by the great psychiatrist, Carl Jung. He said, every transformation demands as its precondition, the ending of a world the collapse of an old philosophy of life. And I, I love that so much because it, it totally reframes crisis, identity crisis from the end. Like, this is it. This is the big one. <laughs> There's no mm-hmm. coming back from this to it's just, it's the beginning. Like it's a new, it's the doorway to a new beginning, right? A crisis. And it's hard in the moment. It's, hard, it's easy for us to talk about that. But like in the moment when you're scared shitless, it's, it's <laughs> hard to like feel that. But I really think... That is so true. And like, to your point, like it is, it is so profoundly true. So yeah. It's a and, nice, and I it's think, a nice I think it's where every single person that's listening right now, they're in the epicenter of that. Yeah, Like, right. sure. Sounds nice. Sounds except nice when you're you in the middle too. of it. And that's, that's kind of where everybody is, including me. Um, so I've, I've teed this multiple times. I don't want to have to tease it anymore. There's a very practical it. exercise that you teach that I really think is like the kernel of something that could be so much larger, but it's this crazy concept of scheduling my anxiety. Talk to me about what this means. Yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to gently correct you actually first cuz it, it not just Oh, sure, please. because I'm persnickety, but um because it it's actually core to the the exercise. Scheduled worry. Um mm, okay, it goes all the way back to what we talked about with like the distinction between emotions and thoughts. And mm-hmm. one of the core distinctions is you can't control your emotions. It, which and the implication is you cannot schedule your emotion. You can't like define a time and say like, all right, I'm going to do anxiety at this yeah. time or I'm going to do, happiness. I'm going to be, I'll be going to be sad tonight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, so you can indirectly do that. And that's part of the idea, but schedule, so scheduled worry. The idea here is that you, I'll, I'll give you the nutshell version. 
you make a time, you schedule a time to worry on purpose. And as a result, you are going to feel fairly anxious. Probably not as anxious as you're anticipating. You hear that idea, you're like, why the hell would I schedule time to be... <laughs> That's just going to make me even more anxious than I already am. Um, but what you do, so you might say, okay, every every evening at mm, 7.45, after I put the kids to bed, but before my wife and I watch a show for the evening or something like that, I'm going to sit down and for 15 minutes, I'm going to get out my like a legal pad, not a fancy journal, just get like a legal pad. It can be you know, scraps of paper, whatever. And I'm going to sit down and I'm literally, I'm just going to brain dump every single worry I can think of. I'm going to transcribe it onto paper. Now, this is, this is critical here. You are not solving your worries. You're literally just pulling them out of your head and you're putting them down on paper. It's like a word or two, maybe a sentence at most. Don't worry about, you know, grammar, spell, all that kind of stuff. You're just literally pulling it out of your head and putting it down on paper. And it's, it's anything. It's everything from, again, I forgot to get bananas at the grocery store to nuclear war. Like anything. <laughs> By the way, this is, I, I highlighted this phrase because I literally laughed out loud when I read it. Like, I forgot the bananas <laughs> and nuclear war. I'm like, and that just war. is the perfect encapsulation of this And exercise. they might be Sorry. side by side. They might show up right, right after each other. <laughs> That's totally okay. The brain is a crazy place sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you're just getting it all down, but you're only doing it for your scheduled amount of time. You're either, you know, 10 minutes is sometimes what I recommend. 15 minutes is usually somewhere in there. You're writing them down, pen and paper. Don't do a computer, do a pen and paper. Get them all down, right? When your time is up, set a timer. When your time is up, you take your paper, you rip it off, you throw it away. Mm. You do not do anything with them. <laughs> then you, you go about your day. You can, especially in the beginning, it can be a little intense. Again, it's usually not as intense as you're imagining it in your head being. Um, but you can, what, one thing you can do is you can plan a, what I call a, a calming exit ritual. So you can plan to, one, I'm, one of my weird things is like, I like washing the dishes. I find it kind of like soothing and calming. And so teach me, it, teach me that someday. <laughs> when I do schedule worry, and I do this from time, I don't, I don't do it all the time now, but if I'm going through a particularly stressful time in my life, I just, I do scheduled worry. Like that's my thing. Um, I just do it. And, but I always plan, I often plan to like do the dishes afterwards. Cause it kind of, it kind of like takes me down out of it. Or, you know, you watch a show or something like that. So that's what you do. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's not more complicated than that. And you do that. You do it every day. You got to do it daily. I, 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 I used to give more wiggle room on this, but like it's most effective when you do it daily and you do it for at least a few weeks, like any habit or skill, like you can't half-ass it. You got to really commit to it and do it if you want to see results. Now, what? Now, why does this work? And I, I, I kind of worked into this backwards, describing what it was before I described what it is, why it works, and why it's important. The idea is normally your your worried brain, it's it's like a crazy toddler that's just like rambunctious and like has the run of the house, totally spoiled, no rules, just like does whatever it wants all the time right? So you're sitting in the middle, you're working on, you know, writing an article or you're creating a presentation or you're giving a speech or whatever you're doing. And like all of a sudden your worry brain like pops up and starts worrying about nuclear war or the bananas or whatever it is, right? Or losing your job or, you know, whatever it could be. What you've got here is worry is intruding all over your life. It just thinks it can pop up and like hijack your brain whenever it wants. Now, the reason it thinks this, not to blame the victim, but most of us, when a worry pops into our head, we indulge it. We keep worrying. A worry showed up, which we didn't control, but then we worried. We kept worrying about it. 
And what this does is when you give attention to things in your brain, just like toddlers, <laughs> the more attention you give them, the more the behavior repeats. So when a worry pops into your brain and you immediately go, oh my God, yeah, we should think more about that, right? I should put everything aside and like worry like hell about this thing, right? What not only are you making yourself anxious in the moment, but you are training your brain to do more of that intrusive worry all the time. And when you're worrying constantly, you're going to be constantly anxious. That's what leads to this like low level constant anxiety. It's worry. You've, you have unintentionally trained your brain that it's okay to bombard you whenever it wants with worry. It's like that annoying coworker who just like pops in all the time and is constantly like interrupting. Um, they, they're well-intentioned, but they're a pain in the ass and they get in the way of actually like getting on with your life. So what schedule, scheduled worry fundamentally is about, it's about putting healthy boundaries on your own mind, on your mind's tendency to worry. But it's about retraining those worries. It's not, the content of the worry does not matter at all. What you're doing is by carving out a specific time and rewarding your brain for worrying at that time, you're saying, hey, brain, this is the time to worry. And then all those other times, I'm not going to indulge it. I'm not going to give it uh, attention. What you're doing there, it's like the other metaphor is, it's like uh, like housebreaking a new puppy. When you first get a puppy, they're adorable and they're sweet and they're so, oh, they're so cute. And then they poop on your living room floor. You're like, ugh, not so sweet. <laughs> but here's the thing. When your puppy poops on the living room floor, you can't tell your puppy not to poop on the living room floor. You can't, you know, that's really disrespectful and kind of messy and I don't like this. You should stop. The puppy's just going to look up at you, cute little brown eyes, right? Same with worry. Your brain's worrying, making you anxious. You can't just say, you know, brain, please stop worrying. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> you can't tell it to stop worrying. You have to train it to stop worrying. So how do you train a puppy to stop pooping in the middle of, you know, the lawn or on the, you can't whack it on the nose of the newspaper. Like that stuff doesn't work. If you ask any dog trainer, what you do is you create a space where it's okay for them to do their business and you reward the hell out of them for doing it in the right place. And a side effect of that is they do way less of it in the wrong place. So scheduled worry is applying that exact same principle from dog training <laughs> to our own minds. You create a time for worry. And when you really commit to it, and, and committing means two things. It means when you have scheduled worry time, you worry like hell during that scheduled worry time. You get all those worries out, right? You put them on paper. But then the second half of it is when it's not your scheduled worry time, you maintain those good boundaries on the worry. You say, you know what? This is hard. I've got this worry. I, I want it. I can feel my brain wanting to elaborate on this worry. I'm not going to do it. I have my scheduled worry time. I appreciate you, brain. I'm sure you're just trying to help. I'll get to you tonight during scheduled worry. And you do that. And I promise you, <laughs> I've never seen... It's probably the most effective technique I've ever experienced in all of clinical psychology. It is so powerful. It's really helpful too. It's helpful for all of anxiety. It's really helpful though, if you have a lot of worry and anxiety at night, um, you have trouble sleeping because of worry and anxiety. This, is a, this will be a game changer. It's mm. so, so helpful. Um, it's so helpful. I, I created my own little like mini website for it. It's just called scheduledworry.com. And it just goes through the basic instructions. Um, so you guys can check it out if you want. It's really, it's, it's just, a, there's no um, shenanigans to it. It's a really simple website. Um, but it's such a profoundly helpful exercise um, for any situation where you just feel kind of overwhelmed with a lot of anxiety and worry. 
It's all about putting good boundaries on your worry brain and training it to be better behaved. Doesn't mean you're not going to have any worries, right? Or your, your anxiety is going to magically disappear. But there's such a big difference between a housebroken dog and a non-housebroken dog. And there's such a big difference between sort of a well-trained mind and a mind that is just sort of used to running wild all over the house upstairs. Um, so I would really encourage like, check this out. And I should say, this is not my... It's it's an adaptation of a, an older technique 50 years ago. There's a guy named Tom Borkovic, who was a famous psychologist. He was one of the early pioneers in generalized anxiety. And he came up with a, a version of this, this idea of scheduled worry and kind of creating time for worry. And there's all sorts of sub-variants. And, um, but it's, it's, it's really helpful. So... Uh, did I cover everything? Did I, you, I this you, is like my favorite thing to talk no. about. So I, <laughs> you, you covered it perfectly. And okay. as somebody that's been training a puppy for the last year and a half, I can relate to this on such a deep level. Uh, and there's just, there's one other tiny thing that I want to add on to this. And I want to make sure to let you go. Cause we're already over time, um, right. but this, this has been tremendously valuable and I've learned a ton. I've taken more notes on this show than I've taken in months. So many things I want to get into. Um, but it, going further along this line of, uh, the puppy training and what I've learned from mm -hmm. that and how that applies to understanding anxiety and also understanding failure, there's this concept. I don't know what it's called in your field, but it's called target fixation. And the example would be uh, like for me, the thought in my mind when I was uh, training and I was uh, competing in Ninja Warrior is that if you get wet, like if you fall off an obstacle, if there's any water yeah. at all, you failed, right? So it's don't get wet, don't get wet, mm -hmm. don't get wet. But your brain hears get wet, get wet, right? It doesn't understand the negative part of it. And the interesting thing that because I was learning about target fixation the same time I was training a dog, it's like saying to your dog, we're not going to go for a walk. We're mm. not going to go for a walk. All they hear is walk, 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 and they get all excited, right? And I feel like what you're talking about is the same thing where it's like, worry, worry, worry. Like, oh, stop worrying. Stop worrying. All your brain hears is let's worry more, right? So the as soon as you mentioned the the puppy, I'm like, yeah, I've, I've learned more about life and habit formation and behavior from training a puppy than from mm. years of podcasting and reading books. It's just now I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So having said all that, want to be very, very conscious of your time. We're going to make sure that uh, people have uh, links to the, the scheduledworry.com. Um, but more importantly, for anybody that wants to learn more about your work, they want to subscribe to your newsletter and they want to just find you and interact with you, where should we send people? Yeah, the newsletter is definitely the best place to go. It's thefriendlymind.com. Friendlymind.com. Friendly Terrific. And it's a it's a free weekly newsletter. It comes out every Monday morning. And um, yeah, I'd love to love to have you on. Well, I can assure you that now that uh, my team member has discovered you, that I will definitely become a subscriber as well. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, can't thank you enough for your time. And I think this will have a tremendously positive benefit on everybody that listens. So thank you so much. I hope so. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well.
One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.